2: Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, April 13th. The Deathbed Sandwich Generation Edition. Uh, I'm Gabriel Roth, Slate Senior Editor, and I'm here with Carvel Wallace from Oakland, California. Hi, Carvel. Hey, how's it going? Good. And Rebecca Lavoie from the wilds of New Hampshire. Hi, Rebecca. Hey,
3: Gabe. How you doing?
2: Good. This week, we're going to talk about being a parent while your own parents are approaching the end of their lives. Uh, We're also going to do triumphs and fails and uh, recommendations. First, a couple of announcements in Slate Plus. Uh, Slate editor John Swansburg is going to come in with a parenting fail-slash-conundrum involving Sesame Street. And if you're not already a Slate Plus member, then you should sign up for Slate Plus. You can do it through slate.com slash momanddadplus, or you can get three free months of Slate Plus by using Slate's iOS app. Just download the Slate app in the App Store or go to slate.com slash app, and you'll get three free months, 90 days of Slate Plus, including this bonus segment of today's podcast, absolutely free. If you're not already on our Facebook page, you should be on our Facebook page. It's at Facebook.com/slash mom and dad are fighting. If you have any questions that you'd like us to address on the show, call and leave us a message at four two four two five five seven eight three three. That's four two four two five five seven eight three three. Okay. That's it for announcements. Uh let's talk about our triumphs and our fails. Rebecca, have you triumphed or failed recently?
3: Failed. Big time.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, in a way, I'm glad for entertainment purposes. Uh, what has what what failure have you committed recently?
3: Uh, well, I'm really looking for advice as to whether or not this was my failure or my husband's failure. Um, he knows I'm talking to you about this, so full disclosure. But he totally sucks, and um, this is how he sucks. <laughs> uh, he is a very, very laid-back guy, which is one of the reasons why I adore him. He's easygoing. He's very, you know, amenable to things. He's game to try stuff. You know, he's just, but his default setting is the static position. Like his default setting is not the like proactive go position. So um, that's a little bit of context. Uh, On Sunday, I had to leave for the whole day with my older son to go do something very important. um, And... You know, I left in the morning, and, you know, one of the things about living with and loving a laid back person is that part of the deal is that you really need to be very clear and sort of lay out, you know, if you need stuff done or taken care of, like you need to be really specific about it. Mm. So I left and I Mm. was like, there are two things that I'm really looking for uh, when I get back. One of them is the laundry having been advanced to a a degree that looks like the project has advanced several stages. (laughs) And uh, the other thing is that Teddy, my younger son, really needs to get his homework done. I'm very uncomfortable sending him back to his dad's house unless for sure he's got all of his homework done. And that may involve him going up the street to his teenage life coach or just doing it. I don't care how it happens. It just needs to happen. So, you know, fast forward eight and a half hours, you can probably guess where this is going. Uh, when I return home at you know 5:30 at night after leaving at nine o'clock in the morning, neither one of those things has been accomplished at all. Like <laughs> just at all. And uh, you know, the sort of reasoning is very much like, oh, well. Teddy says Sam isn't home, and, you know, so he was going to get back to him. I'm not really sure what's going on with that. And the laundry, you know, that washer sometimes flashes, that code thing that happens. And, you know, so it just took forever to spin. And, you know, so I just, uh, you know, and I just, you know, this is this is the fail part, the real fail part, is that then I go into, like, full-on... Enraged, sort of like naggy mom mode, where I'm like, now parenting everyone, and I'm like, if I'm not here, nothing happens. You know, I I need to be able to leave the house and just know these basic things are going to happen, and I turn into a giant shrew. So, um, the fail I think is systemic. Uh, I you know somehow haven't yet figured out how to be able to leave the house all day and either have things you know happen the way that maybe they. Should in a cooperative family environment and or not end up turning into a giant mom shrew when i get home and for the most part i'm generally disappointed because usually nothing has happened (laughs) in the the period of time i've been out of the house so that was my fail of the week i'd love to hear your guys thoughts on it you're both you're both guys uh you both are husbands or ex-husbands and you're both dads and have you ever been in this position and uh should i keep this fail all to myself or should i share some of it with my wonderful husband kevin who also sucks
2: Carvel, I assume you have totally solved this problem over the course of your life, and I look forward to hearing your solution.
1: This is elementary. No, I mean, I. I, well, first of all, let me just say I'm really sorry that you had that experience. That is really difficult. That's a difficult thing to feel like um, because what I'm hearing in that is a sense of overwhelm. Like you mentioned that you were gone on a weekend day from 9 in the morning until 5 at night. So what I hear in that is a sense of like I've extended myself in this extra way and all I'm asking in return is that these other things for which I am somehow default responsible get taken care of in my absence. Right. In other words, too many things are falling on me and it's not fair. And um, I I'm, i just want to start by saying I'm really sorry that you had that experience because that is difficult. Aww, and being a thanks. parent and b- yeah, and yeah, I mean, because being a parent is overwhelming and being a partner is overwhelming and there is invariably we run up against that feeling that there's just too much to do and we can't get it all done. And that feeling of frustration probably hides some level of fear. I don't you can talk about that with your therapist, but my, in my experience, there's always a fear underneath that, that I'm not a good parent, I'm not a good husband, I'm not a good dad, I'm not getting things done. And um, And so that's kind of why it becomes much bigger than just the laundry or just the homework. So that having been said... My feeling is that you should be able to say, I, I asked for these things to happen. These things didn't happen. I feel upset about that. And I think communicating that is really important because communication is a super important part of co-parenting, uh, marriage, and running a household together. So that's three different sort of partnership enterprises that you're in with this person. And I think that the ability to to state what your feelings are and what your reactions are to what happened is should all you should always have that right. However, one of the things that I always try and teach my kids, and I don't know how well I am at th- doing this, is that we try to communicate our feelings as opposed to demonstrating. Them. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm taking it back to first grade here. So we communicate our feelings by saying, "Hey, I feel upset about the fact that this thing happened. Can we talk about that? What can can I hear from your point of view? You know, what your thoughts are about that." as opposed to demonstrating them, which is something I do, where I'm going to make sure you feel my upset. <laughs> I mean, you're going to hear it in my tone of voice. You're going to know I'm going to like freeze you out. I'm going to answer you with one-word answers. Whatever my little shtick is on that day, that's me trying to pass off my feeling onto this person. We have the same shtick,
0: it turns in out. A sense,
1: <laughs> yeah, in, a, yes. in a sense, it's a form of punishment, right? I feel upset, so now I want you to feel some discomfort as well. And when I do that, that's my ultimate goal is to now basically a vengeance punishment i want to i want to get them to have bad feelings because i have bad feelings which is separate from communicating so my summary is that you should always be allowed to communicate but for the for the sanctity of your partnership and family it's probably best to continue to work on not demonstrating and trying to punish uh, in return for your feeling of being upset
3: yeah yeah and i i'm there with you and honestly that's exactly what happened as i said I'm really upset because I was gone all day and I only asked for these two things. And, you know, you can understand why I'm frustrated about that. Right. And that really was the conversation. Um, we have a good for the most part, relationship, I feel the feeling of shrewishness is sort of what I'm trying mm. to, to control here. And also <laughs> and also creating systems where I can legit leave the house, you know, and I, I mean, I yeah. can, I can. But the, yeah. the bottom line is I am the default of making sure just stuff happens. And even though I don't do all the stuff, I am the default person to make sure that all the stuff actually happens. And right. That, it comes annoying. down a lot to, like,
2: ownership. <laughs> like, yeah. you apparently own laundry in your family, even if you're not the person actually, like, your husband was meant to be the person doing the laundry, but you're the person who's, like, accountable for whether the laundry gets <laughs> done or not. And so all you can do is, like, you can delegate to him but in the end, he's not accountable. And so when the little warning thing is flashing up on the screen, when the error message is up there, then, like, what can he do? All he can do is send it back up the chain to you because you delegated it down to him. He does, you, he, for so, Somehow the process has worked out that he doesn't have ownership of the outcome of uh, of, of the laundry. Um, And I think that's what you most need to change is like somebody you need to own less and he needs to own more and then you can like trade off the actual tasks. But but he needs to be accountable for the outcome and the same with homework, obviously, yeah. although given that uh, I, I think I'm right in saying this is your son and not his son. Mm hmm. Does he have this, like, is it, would it be possible for him to have ownership over his stepson's homework or or, or is that always going to fall to you?
3: I mean, it's always going to fall to his stepson ultimately, but, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a whole separate conversation. But, you know, we have, again, an unusual situation insofar as I do feel sometimes like he feels more like he wants to own those things than most stepdads would, um, But yeah, I think that's really sage what you talked about, about ownership, because that's what happens at work, right? There are some tasks you own at work that you don't actually do, but ultimately you're the one who has to report on them and make sure they happen and facilitate processes and so forth. So the bottom line, though, is, Gabe, I also want to have clean pants so
2: you know, right I, I, and maybe he doesn't particularly I think have, he
3: that's about it. less of a priority for him he's yeah. laid back I think I explained that already right
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so what uh, I'm curious what his reaction was when you brought this issue to him
3: he's like oh was it defensive no I know he, he wasn't defensive he was like I know he's like is, yeah, I says yeah I really I I totally duffed this one. You know, I was working on. You know, we he was producing the R one of our podcasts, and it was just sort of like rabbit hole. And I I figured Teddy's thing was. Uh, I figured you know nothing I could do, and you know, and it was just, you know, and it's, it's very like I said, he's like super wonderful and laid back guy. So it's not like he's. um saying you put me in an impossible situation like he knows it was like two minor things to do on like a a 10-hour period and you know it was a whole thing it it wasn't as much of a thing as I think it would have been in uh, a not as good uh dynamic relationship but anyway I I I will say
2: a thing that I do when I'm in his situation that has helped me that I've started doing over the past six months is like setting reminders on my phone and not letting myself ignore them (laughs) like if I need to check the laundry in an hour I make my phone annoy me and say like check the laundry <laughs> and, and i can like defer it by 10 minutes or whatever the thing on the phone is but then it's just going to annoy me again and stop me from doing what i really want to do so eventually it does motivate me to like do the laundry right Sugge- so like suggest that he start like constantly telling siri to remind him to check the laundry or whatever develop Maybe that some tools him. yeah exactly
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right um carvel got a triumph or fail Today I have a triumph because I had a fail last week and as I always say every day is a parenting triumph and fail but uh today I'm I'm feeling pretty good because we this past weekend my two kids and our family friend and their kid and another friend kid friend who we just grabbed along all went to a beach house in sort of north of here in California, this beautiful thing where we split the cost of it for two nights and stayed in this house and looked out over the waves and that sort of thing. And um, that was something that was um, so much fun, but I think one of the great moments of it was that, you know, we we, we had a uh, power outage on the first night because there was a pretty severe storm in California on, I think, Thursday night was the night we got there. So we lost power for probably four hours. And, you know, our kids are 14, 14, 11, and 11 were the kids that were on the trip with us. So if you get that group of kids together in a house, a beach house, all they're going to do is like stare at phones for umpteen hours. And so that power outage was great. It was a miraculous intervention because then we had to play board games and charades, which we did for five hours. Even after the lights came on, we were involved in a very competitive and intense charades match. And, uh, It was just I I had this realization, again, that I could take a step back from parenting and just hang out with these people as people and that I didn't have to intervene or teach them lessons or argue with them about how they're approaching life or how they're behaving. Um, So this is similar to the New York trip that I described a few weeks ago where – I had another level of letting go. And letting go is like a constant theme for me in my parenting triumphs now that my kids are of letting go age. Um, but maybe the best moment of it was they stayed up really late, and at one, there was a hot tub. We, The adults were hanging out in the hot tub. We come back inside. People go to sleep. The kids come—my son comes downstairs, and I'm looking out at this ocean, and it's super dark and gorgeous and the moonlight and the whole thing— and my son comes downstairs and he's looking for his phone, obviously. And um, he fe- is feeling upset about something and I can sense it. So I ask him what's going on. And then he starts to unload all this stuff that's happening in his life. Fear about what he's going to do with his future. Fear about does he feel like he belongs? Does he have friends? Is he cool? What's he going to do? And and we were able to kind of sit there and, you know, in like parallel gaze, both of us looking out this window, looking at the ocean And I was able to, I I had this thought like, oh my God, this is, this is the talk. I got to make sure not to screw this up. You know, like this is my opportunity to have this like storied bonding moment with my kid. I got to make sure not to screw this up. And what I focused most on in that conversation was trying to listen more than I talked. I don't know if I achieved that, but that's what I was hoping. And also not trying to solve every problem for him in that moment. Just to be able to say, yeah, that sounds difficult. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, I I understand why it feels that way. You know, I feel like you're going to be okay, but I know it doesn't feel that way to you. And that was basically my main message. And after that talk, I noticed a tremendous shift in our relationship. Um, uh, And I feel like listening was the key. It was the key that kind of unlocked the door to like a new level of um, respect between us. So I would say that with the assistance of Mother Nature cutting out the lights that was a parenting triumph for me. Wow, that's a heck of a triumph. Yeah, blimey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's all going to go downhill again soon because his <laughs> grades are coming out, and so I'm just, you know, <laughs> they just ended the quarter, and I know it's not going to be happy. So uh, I'm able to enjoy that. And but now you have context,
3: sort of... right? Because his life, you, you, if you start seeing him as more of a full person. You know, hit the only product he's responsible for producing right now is these grades, as far as you're concerned, like parentally. Right. Like they kids can kind of, yeah. you know, he can w- have his own style where where he wants, you know, use whatever language he wants. As long as those grades are good. Right. That's sort of usually our focus. But with more Generally, context yeah. and you sort of step back and see them as a fuller person, maybe some of that grade stuff plays into some of those other conversations you've been having. Right.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I, I, you know, I've mentioned this before, but um, his grades are a tremendous mystery to both of us. I think more to me, I think his mother has more quickly accepted that he's just not getting good grades and that's just one of his things. And I still am like wrestling with the notion that there's something I can do Mm -hmm. to change this for him. And I'm aware sort of intellectually that that's really beating my head against a brick wall. And yet, I'm still trying (laughs) because there may be a crack in there somewhere. So, yeah, you're right. Like part of the serenity for me, which allows me to be a better parent, is the slow, painful, and sometimes frightening process of accepting reality, accepting reality, accepting reality. And and like you said, having more context for him because when I take the grades out of it, I'm like – this kid is great. Yeah. What a great guy. That's
3: how I feel about you know? <laughs> my son Teddy as well. He's terrible with the with the grades and he's brilliant. And it's <laughs> you take that out of the equation and your whole experience with him is wonderful.
2: I have, a, I, I have a, a small parenting triumph. It probably glorifies it to call it a triumph, but I solved a problem that had been bugging me for a while, which is to do with my, my own mom who lives in London, England, and so we don't get to see her as much as any of us would like, and, and she doesn't get to see the kids as much as she would like, uh, and we talk to her on the weekends. We do FaceTime, and the kids can FaceTime with her, and she loves it, and they love it, and for them, that's like almost as good as watching Peppa Pig. You know what I mean? It's like grandma is like a little bit more screen time to them. So they love that. Um, but I never really get to like talk to her. I never get to tell her how anybody's doing or like how the kids are doing or how I'm feeling about stuff or whatever. Um, because, uh, you know, the time difference and she's talking to the kids on FaceTime and everybody's running around and everything like that. And this had been kind of bugging me that like I, um, I sort of don't get to talk to my mom. Um, I started writing her short emails, like once a week about what the kids are doing and what I'm doing, like two paragraphs. And now we have like a written correspondence of a kind that I don't remember having since like, I don't know, 10 years or 15 years when before there were computers and, and people would or before there was like Facebook and when people would write letters. Um, and it turns out to be a great way to stay in touch with my mom in England. So, um, that has been my minor triumph or, or uh, solution.
3: That's a big deal. That's not Wonderful. nothing.
1: No, it feels good. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, I think you're downplaying that. I mean, th- to be able to stay in touch, to figure out a way to stay in touch with our parents, especially as they advance in age, uh, it's really important. And it's hard. It's much harder than we give it credit for, I think.
3: Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it's hard to want to, you know, because I think with our parents, we get locked in these um, conversational uh traps where you know with me and my mom like every conversation starts with a long uh, soliloquy about how upset she is that we haven't talked in so long which is completely disincentivizing to like have the next conversation <laughs> and even though I've explained that many many times you know I just have now learned that that is the way we uh, start our conversations is by me apologizing for not being in uh in better touch and and so to have that desire to to learn to feel and and to you know really accept the fact that you feel like you want to be connected, I think that's really great. I mean, that's something that I would like to, um, you know, make more a part of my life, you know, especially now, as I'm sure we'll talk about uh, shortly. But uh, Mm. I I think that's really, really wonderful and inspiring.
2: Rebecca, I know you have been, uh, dealing with some issues with your, uh, with your stepfather, I think.
3: Yep. So my stepfather, George has been in my life really since I was about six years old. So he's not, uh, you know, a recent addition. He he is a lot older than my mom, about 13 years older, and he's 87. And in the last few years, he's had a lot of health problems. And, um, I'd say I feel like, and I don't think this is an exaggeration, in the last four or five years, we've maybe had six or seven times where we thought oh george is he's not going to be around for too much longer so we've had like five last christmases with george <laughs> which has been you know every year it's like oh i thought that last time was going to be the last one <laughs> um which is you know it is what it is uh and and it, now he really is at the end he was he went to the hospital for something uh you know few weeks ago, I want to say six weeks ago, five, six weeks ago, and um he's never gone home, and he's not going to it's it's pretty clear, and he's just he's dying i mean this is this is what it looks like, and it's every time i they live about a little over two hours away every time I go over there, it's definitely he's a lot worse. I always think it's gonna be the last time it's sort of like a microcosm of the last five years where every time I go over I'm like, this is the last time I'm gonna come over here and and see him and then the next week I'm like, this is the last time, so it's definitely a protracted long and uh, difficult process. And dealing with that with the kids has just presented some really surprising and sometimes kind of distasteful in terms of talking about them challenges. But as I have talked about them, I've come to realize that uh, I'm not the only person to ever, you know, grapple with this kind of stuff, if that makes sense.
2: As you've talked about it with other people who who have lost parents.
3: Yeah. You know? And well, who've dealt also with this kind of losing a parent where it is, you know, this a protracted, long sort of expected thing. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. So, um, you know, communicating, going over there with the kids. It's like we're at the point now where if every single time I got a text or phone call from my mom or email that. George is in a really bad way. This is an emergency. If I went over there every time, I would be going over there every single day. And at the same time, you know, uh, the boys have like a lot going on. You know, my stepdaughter, too, like she's got like prom this weekend. And like, you know, there's a concert that my son is in one day and there's obviously work stuff that I'm coping with. So it's become this, like, balance where, yes, it's also, you know, helping my mom, supporting her. She's dealing with a lot of logistics. But it has really become like a logistical juggling and conversation. Like, we are no longer doing the it's so sad that George is dying part of the process. It's more like you know, let's look at the calendar and figure out when we can get over there, who should go. You know, I didn't go. I went with Henry on Sunday and not Teddy because Teddy had a lot of homework to do, which, as you know now, it did not get done. <laughs> uh, but it, it, we're having all of these weird conversations around. And meanwhile, somebody's dying. Like, this is what it's framed around. And so, you know, my worries are, are my kids seeing me not being like a super devoted child to a parent Uh, you know are my kids do they benefit by seeing George now when he he's not really recognizing them anymore and he's only able to talk for like a minute or two at a time is it is it a a benefit to him or to them you know to drive over there and have like one of these visits with him that's very very difficult and depressing and um, you know and it's just a lot of that kind of stuff and I don't know it's just it's just it's just brought out a lot of stuff. I mean, that's, that's all I can say about it.
2: Well, first of all, my condolences. I'm really sorry. Um, well, thank it's you. It's a really hard situation. Um, h- how long has he been in the hospital?
3: hospital? Uh, this time it's been about uh, it's been all about two months, actually. I realize now it's been sixty something days, only because I had a logistical conversation with my mom about Medicare the other day. So that's the only reason I know the number. So it's been over sixty days that he's been in the hospital, and now he's in a facility that's like at the hospital, sort of like a care, a care facility. Yes, yeah, so it's been like a couple a, of months. A hospice? No, it's like a, it's 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 similar. It's like a rehab center, but you know he can just stay there. All the it's it's like a hospice, but it's not a, mm. in, partic- in particular, it's not a hospice. So.
2: And and what's your sense of, of how much longer he has to live?
3: Funny you should ask, because six weeks ago, I thought it was a couple days. Today, I think it's a day or two. That's the way it is all the time. There's no sense that it's going to be longer than a day or two every single day and now it's been a couple of months that we've been having the same conversation we've made funeral plans you know we've doled out tasks for Mm. people to do uh you know when he dies it's like the part of it that you usually try to cram into a few days afterwards like we've actually already done all that stuff uh which is also weird and um it's a strange kind of thing but um yeah this is it's 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 brought out a lot of, you know, family dynamic stuff. As, you know, we were driving back from Vermont on Sunday. We were listening to my son is learning to drive. So he's driving, and it was a good, it's a good opportunity for him to get a lot of driving hours in, which is, I'm like, how horrible is that that I was thinking that way? But that's kind of how logistical this has become. And we were listening to this American life, and there was an episode on about, um, you know, a conversation that a parent was having with an adult child they couldn't have when they were kids. And, you know, we're just talking about it like it's an episode of This American Life. And I realized, like, like we should really be talking about this for real because we just came from a parent who's dying. And is this opening up like an opportunity for us to really talk? But uh, it's just like if we did that every day that we thought George was dying, it's all we would talk about. So we're not really talking about it at all.
2: Did Did you talk about it when it first began to seem like he was dying?
3: Yes, we did. And so it and so. And, and here's the rub. It's like, how much of my kids' lives should be about this um, inevitability hanging over them? You know, should they be able to kind of go on, go to school, do the things they were looking forward to doing, you know, see their friends, do their homework, uh, participate in school musicals, all that stuff? Should they be able to continue doing all that stuff, even though Grandpa George is dying in the background? I mean, I, that's the way that I've, feel. Uh, I- I've set it up that way so that they can. And, you know, I'm, you know, talking to my mom pretty regularly and that's sort of hanging over me. But, you know, it's they're also seeing me go to work every day and continuing to do the stuff that I usually do. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's that. And I know this is not unusual. I know that like long term, you know, declines. It's something that happens. It's just... It's rough. I, I really do think it's a rough way uh, to lose a parent because it doesn't seem intuitive. Like all the feelings you thought you would have, you have them. And then, you, and then you're dealing with all the other stuff. And, and then you feel weird about not having the feelings you think you're supposed to have. And then you worry about what your kids are seeing. You know, I, I don't mm-hmm. know if either one of you has any experience with this at all.
1: Yeah, I, I do actually have experience with this. My mom died uh, of lung cancer in 2008. And I was I was an only child. So I was her. I was the I was the guy in that scenario, and at that point, uh, my kids' mom and I were still married. The kids were let's see, two thousand eight, so they would have been five and three. Um, and we kind of had everyone, including my mom, all sort of jammed into our our two bedroom in L.A. Um, and uh, it was yeah, what you described um, particularly about being surprised by the you have all the feelings you think you're going to have, but then you have all these other feelings that you weren't expecting. I think that's the case for everyone. And, like, what I'm—I was going to ask you a little bit about how your kids are responding to this and what they're saying. But before I get to that, I want to say—I just want to give you, I mean, permission to think logistically about a logistical matter, despite the feeling that there should—that you should be in this constant state of—I don't know what the expectation is for you, that you should be in a constant state of mourning or in a constant state of, like— sort of like spiritual and emotional presence with this scenario. Um, None of that is true. Like, the loss of a parent is weird. Death is weird. It 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 strikes you in all kinds of weird ways at weird times. And I think that you kind of, in order not to make it worse for yourself, you kind of have to just be down with that. Like, today, I'm feeling like I sort of hope this is over because it's such a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And that's a terrible feeling, but it's true. And now today, I hope this person never dies because I don't want this, you know, I don't want to lose them. And now today, all I can think about is, like, some money situation or some logistical or how I'm going to handle this like upcoming conference. A should vacation I go, I situation. Not? I, that's the, what the we're vacations. faced with. Vacations, exactly.
3: We've got a vacation planned exactly. in two <laughs> weeks. And so last week, I had yeah. like the weird conversation with myself where I'm like, if George dies tomorrow, like we'll, it will, we'll be in the clear or he has to hang on until the first week in May. Like, <laughs> right,
1: but if he dies next week, then you're <laughs> not in the clear. Yeah. No, absolutely. Right? And that's. It is. It is. But I also just want to put a plug in for like, it's just, it is, it's crazy for all of us. You're not doing anything wrong by, by just experiencing the craziness of it. Like I, I found that when my mom died, I was most surprised by, um, by the way, like there was, <laughs> there was a lot I was surprised by, but I found that I was most surprised that the feelings, the slate of feelings I experienced was not what I thought I was going to But then I was like, why would I know what I've experienced? I've never had this before. So whatever I'm experiencing apparently is it, you know? And so there's a level of acceptance that has to go on. You're okay. Like, it's okay that you're thinking logistically about what to do with your vacation. If he dies tomorrow, you can go. If he dies in a week, you can't. That's fine. That doesn't make you a monster or ghoulish (laughs) or a person who lacks human empathy. But I do want to ask what your kids are saying. Because you brought up this other interesting question about how do I integrate or not integrate my children in this lengthy process. What are they saying about it?
3: Well, they've been really great about, um, you know, a couple of times I'm like, hey, do you want to go over and, and see? And they're like, yeah, I really want to. So they've been really great about wanting like they understand that it's important to be there for your family. And I'm really trying to figure out whether or not they're going to keep me company, or they're going to actually see George. Because like I said, the actual visits with George are unsubstantial and incredibly difficult and depressing and short. They're like very, very short. I mean, you can call George on the phone, he can talk for like five seconds, and you know, then he's falls back asleep or or whatever. So um, they've been great. And I feel like they were so great when George was still kind of with us, you know, a few weeks ago when he was able to sit up and really visit. That I feel like they've put in their time <laughs> in a way. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, they've demonstrated they care. You know, they've demonstrated they're thinking about this. They text me <laughs> and ask me about it when they're at their dad's. And I kind of feel like, you know, you. Uh, you've done your part. Like I know you're gonna be there for Grandma after George dies. I know you're gonna want to go to the funeral and you're gonna want to do all this stuff. And um, you know, so I I I think it's okay, and I think they're okay. You know, I, you know, like I said, it was a good opportunity for my son to get some driving in. So I think that sort of played into his willingness to come over there with me mm-hmm. <laughs> on Sunday. But it was also a nice way for us to spend some time together. Um, but it's yeah it, it they, they've they been great they've been great they think it's very sad they always you know spent a week with my parents during the summer at their house in vermont but you know their relationship with my parents is very tongue-in-cheek funny like who takes little kids mm. to go antiquing grandma and grandpa do you know that kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's kind of wrapped up in that also
2: it seems to me that that it, just like Carvel said, he wanted to give you permission to feel the strange mix of things that you're feeling. You want to make sure to give your kids permission to feel whatever weird mix of things that they wind up feeling, right. and that will include being sad about losing Grandpa George, and it will also include being really excited about going on vacation or about something at school or whatever it is, and. Yeah, if this process has been two months already and, and it might be another week or month or however long, then, yeah, life goes on. Even in the midst of tragedy, life goes on. And, and that's something that they're going to learn from this just as you're going to learn
3: it. It, it. it does, yeah. And I will tell you um, – the vacation conversation actually, like, bore some logistical fruit, which uh, I finally, when I went to see my parents on Sunday, said to my mom, like, there's this elephant in the room that I just want to, like, run by you. Uh, we have a vacation plan at the end of April, and I'm, you know, really just a little bit worried about it because it's kind of part of, like, the landscape of our year. And, you know, obviously, if I can't go or we can't go, like, we... You know, we'll figure that out, but I just want to let you know this is something that I'm thinking about, you know, I'm kind of worrying about in the back of my head. And just, oh, I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, um, I'm actually talking to the minister and we're picking out some potential Saturdays in May, perhaps, if George dies before then when we can have the memorial service. So I'll just make sure because we're doing <laughs> cremation, so it can be whenever. And I'll just make sure that, you know, these days it won't be one of these two Saturdays. And I'm like, I can't believe that I said this incredibly sensitive thing, but it actually... It really seemed to help, you know, because my mom was sort of, uh un- she-, she was unwilling or unable to sort of make those kinds of decisions and think about that. But like my bringing up this vacation kind of made her commit to making some decisions in a weird way. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So it, 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 it. it- It's messed up. I mean, to talk to your mom who's losing her husband and say, I'm in the background worried about my vacation, you do feel a little bit like a monster. (laughs) Um, But it also turned out being helpful. So I I guess, I guess that with the the moral, the morality play here, the moral lesson that we can take from it is there's no right. Is that what you guys are saying? There's no right way. I shouldn't feel uncomfortable saying this in front of thousands of people on a podcast. I'm not going to get, you know, fruit thrown at me on the street
1: or or
2: something. (laughs) I I certainly I mean, don't think you deserve to have fruit thrown at you in the
1: street. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, I th- I mean, I think there are, there are wrong ways to deal with the death of a parent, but it doesn't. Nothing you're describing to me sounds like it's it's the wrong way, right? I think you're I think you're just um, kind of coming to grips with the surprise things that you didn't expect, mm-hmm. you know. But they're true. And the logistical things are true, and my experience too is that sometimes those logistical things can can be helpful because they give us something to do with our hands, basically our our grief with our grief, right? Our grief hands, right? Or whatever. Idle hands, like people idle hands. There is a need to sort out the details of, and I, I think you know, there's obviously death has so many layers of acceptance and denial and grief and whatever. And I find I found in my own experience with my mother that walking through that grief, that having to handle logistical things was helpful because it gave me something to do. And it also helped me transition into acceptance about the reality of this thing. You know, once you begin to be like, well, we're going to have to plan the ceremony and these are some logistical concerns about when and where we can do it. It also, it helped me accept the deeper reality that I think I was struggling with, which is that this is going to happen. Um, And, I, I found that to be something of a relief, um, and I was really also grateful when other people came to me to help with logistics. That because then it, then I didn't feel like I was in it alone, you know. Um, so I, again, like I, I nothing you've described sounds like you're way out of line, and it sounds like your kids are doing a great job. I mean, you are modeling for your kids how to deal with death. It sounds like you are doing that. Oh, and thanks. Again, it's not this. It, it, and it, it's that, I mean, they, they seem to get it. Your kids sound intelligent. They're older. They seem to understand that, that when a parent dies or when an older person dies, it's all these things. It's sad. It's annoying. It's logistical. It's logistically difficult. It's boring. It's uncomfortable. You know, and, that, and that, that's just what you roll with as part of the process of accepting death.
2: Carvel, what do you remember about being with your kids at the time that your mother was dying or had died?
1: I remember and they were of course of course a lot younger so it's different but I remember um that my daughter seemed to really get the need to just be present with my mom as much as right she would just go into the room and just hang out with her you know she would just kind of crawl in the bed and and talk with her and sit with her and it it there didn't seem to be you know I think my son who was older felt more intensity about how do I handle this there's some grief here there's some difficulty my mother was also god bless her a, not an easy person to deal with anyway and so I think my son experienced some of that so I think he had very mixed feelings about about her pre, her sudden presence in our house because the other thing is that she didn't live with us and then all of a sudden she did and also she was dying so I think for him that was a lot um, I think from my daughter one thing I really learned is that and this is something that I learned from my kid's mom's dad died um, many years ago back in, I think, 2000. And one of the things that she said was that, you know, a lot of friends didn't call. We were young. We were in our 20s, right? But a lot of friends didn't call. And they didn't, they didn't email. They didn't send text messages. And one of the things that we learned is that people felt like, well, I didn't know what to say. I just didn't know what to do. And, and her response was always, you know, all I needed was for you to just be there. You don't have to know what to do. I just need you to be there, and that's something that I saw repeated when my daughter interacted with my mother at the time of her death. Is that my daughter was just there? She couldn't help. She couldn't change the bedpan. She couldn't administer the pills or whatever. But she just was present. And after a while, I started to pick up on that and go, "Oh, that's that's really what I'm supposed to do here." I don't, even though I'm like ostensibly the head of logistical operations of this person's death, um, that. That is not as, doesn't take up as much time as I like to think. Really, my primary purpose here is just to be present. And that can be uncomfortable because we want to have answers, but we don't always have answers. And we definitely don't have answers when it comes to death. We don't and we never will. And so I think towards the end, I started finally picking up on that, that my job was just to be present.
3: Hmm.
2: Hmm. Rebecca, have you seen any sort of change in your kids or any way that they've reacted that has surprised you in all this?
3: I think they're – the thing that's been most surprising to me is that, you know, most of our family conversations in our, you know, little family, not with my parents, about my parents is very much sort of in the vein of, like, eye-rolling, you know, they're so – you know, my my parents live like it's the 18th century. That's like a joke that we always make, but they really do. You know, they like iron their sheets. They're very like, <laughs> they take a very long time to do things, not because they're old, but because like they're just really old fashioned about a lot of things. Like if they need a lampshade, they go to the lampshade store. You know, that's kind of how my, my parents are. And um, I've really been amazed by how sort of talking about my parents, my kids have just The the sort of, I don't want to call it cutting, but the sort of like humor, like the the vernacular around talking about my parents has really softened. Like they really seem to have Mm. tremendous empathy and appreciation and they're still able to, you know, to be funny and have humor, but sort of understand that, uh, you know, they have the instinct that like, you know, certain Parts of the relationship just aren't important. It's not important that, you know, mom and George couldn't get dinner on the table until 10 p.m. because they had to, like, make the salad dressing from scratch and it had 47 ingredients. That's not important. What's important is that they're our family and that it's really sad that George isn't going to be with us for very much longer. And, you know, and it's really sad for grandma. So I've been really impressed with their being able to read the room and respond emotionally appropriately. It's been really wonderful.
2: Hmm. Well, thanks for talking with us about this. Um,
3: thanks for and- letting
0: me, guys. It's, it's really <laughs> tough, but uh, <laughs> this, is, this has been really nice, actually. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: All right. Uh, let's move on to recommendations. Carvel, do you have anything to recommend?
1: I do have a recommendation. I mentioned it before, but uh, I recommend the game Charades. There's something so um, that works so well for people at all age levels about charades. Everyone gets to sort of make a fool of themselves. Everyone sort of gets into it over time, especially, you know, how teenagers are like, at the beginning, they don't want to do anything, that they don't look cool. But then we found that round after round of playing charades, the kids were getting on their knees and they were making, you know, weird sounds. And it just was a blast. So uh, I find it a great thing to do, a great family activity that um, that doesn't involve screens, that kind of puts everyone on the same level. Kids know things their parents don't know. They enjoy that. Parents know things their kids don't know. They enjoy that. And um, like you mentioned before, Gabe, it, it opens up all this discussion about People who we know that they don't, and they know that we don't. Um, It's just a great, fun game. We laughed so hard during it. Um, The memories kind of like last forever. So, if you can pull it off, if you can talk your kids into it, why not have a game of charades? I love charades.
3: (laughs) Me too. It's so much fun, especially when someone gets Moby Dick. That's always the best one. (laughs) Uh, You you play raunchy
1: charades. Yeah, when you're in, yeah, that's a book, guys. That's not raunchy. That one.
2: I'm going to recommend a viral video. This is a, a video that popped up on my Twitter feed this week. And it uh, it's a video of like a 10, 11-year-old girl talking to her mom in the car. It clarified something for me about my own daughter who is six and who recently has started talking in this sort of hammy, affected way as though she's trying to be the kind of sarcastic, eye-rolling kid that she sees on Nickelodeon shows on TV. Do you know what I'm talking about? This kind yes. of stagey mannerism? <laughs> yep. So this girl in the video was talking to her mom about something that happened at school, about, like, she tried to flirt with a boy and he didn't really give her anything back. And she does it in the same hammy-affected way, but her timing is just great. And she's really committed to it. And, like, it's it's a story that she's, like, sad about, that this boy doesn't like her, but she's really enjoying performing the story. And she does it. It's so funny. And her mom is laughing and, like it made me see something in this kid and maybe also in my kid and in all kids at the core of this hammy affected thing is a kind of very sincere pleasure at communicating and at being funny and at participating in grown-up discourse and i don't know it's a great video it's really funny you should check it out i'll put it on our facebook page and maybe it will also spark profound feelings in you or maybe you will just enjoy the video uh (laughs) Rebecca, what do you recommend? (laughs) Uh,
3: I recommend a magazine subscription for your family. If you don't subscribe to The Week, um, it is a, I think a serious news consumer might be tempted to look down on The Week, but I think that it is an excellent Reader's Digest-style wrap-up of everything that's going on in the world and around the country. And the reason I say it makes a great family magazine is that, there is, There are these roundups of sort of top stories and top opinion of the week. And even like they have a cool real estate section that's like, brick homes across America or homes in Boise. Um, And there's a really fun crossword puzzle that is, you know, a really good level for a family with smart kids to do. It's not New York Times level, but it's not TV guide level either. It's like smack in the middle of those two. Um, And it's a really great way, I think, to if your kids have questions about something that's going on in the news or if they want some context, you can point them to an article in the week, which is typically a couple of paragraphs long. It's usually like an excerpt of of, um, you know, somebody else's article, or it's a wrap up sort of explaining reporting around things, or it just kind of gives you the rundown and and background on topics, you know, things like, for instance, you know, Medicaid <laughs> expansion. Uh, if that's something that you feel like your kids, if they have questions about like, why do people care about this whole ACA thing or whatever, there's probably something in this week's of the week that um, would help explain it. And it, it, it's, it's in our family, a really great, way to not only answer questions but also it's nice to just have lying around it's one of those magazines that everybody seems to pick up and look at at some point go to some section um i don't know it's i i didn't subscribe thinking it was going to be like a family thing i think i got it as a gift but i've continued to subscribe because everybody in the family at some point has their hands on it during the week so that's my recommendation subscribe to the week great
2: all Absolutely. right. That's it from us. Uh thank you for being with us. I'd like to thank my co hosts Rebecca Lavoy and Carvel Wallace. Thanks for being with us guys.
3: Thank you so much for such having me. It's such a pleasure back. to
1: be here all the time.
2: All right. Yeah. Um and we'll be back in two weeks. Uh you can until then you can uh, come visit us on our Facebook page. Tell us what you think. Uh Facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Call and leave us a message at 424-255-7833. This week's episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting was produced by Benjamin Frisch. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. The managing producer is uh, June Thomas. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Slate podcasting is part of the Panoply Network. You can find more Panoply shows at panoply.fm. We will see you in two weeks.